So good evening. Just uh, checking that the sound is coming through to you all. Right. I um, I'll need a guru or someone to signal that it's okay. Um, try it again. There was a little bit of feedback. Okay. How is the sound now? Is it coming through okay? It's good now. It's good now. Okay. Thank you. And uh, if, if anything changes, please let me know so I'm not continuing to speak if you all can't hear. So we're at the end of our second day of practicing unstoppable friendliness. And probably there's a lot of different experiences that we've, we've been having. And today may have been different than the first day. Um, I'd like to speak to um, the way in which metta can grow our hearts to tell some stories that inspire me and also address some of the challenges that may be coming up in our practice of metta, how we might um, hold those. So just as mindfulness meditation trains our mind, Metta trains the heart. And our heart can always grow more, just as our, our mind can always uh, grow more, see more clearly. So Ursula Le Guin says, love doesn't just sit there like a stone. It has to be made like bread, remade all the time, made new. So our love can always be uh, cultivated. And this the bread of our love is uh, always in need of attention and care. So there's a story from the time of the Buddha where he, he asks his students, if I put a handful of salt in this glass of water, um, will it become undrinkable? And his students say, yes, it will become very terrible to have to drink that water. But then the Buddha says, if I put a handful of salt in this river, Will it become undrinkable? And they say, no, it won't. It won't affect. That was in the days when you could drink <laughs> from rivers. And uh, so he said, yes. So our heart should be the same, that a handful of salt, a handful of um, pain, bitterness, difficult experiences, if our heart is vast like a river, that that, handful of difficulty won't um, change our basic nature. And so this practice that we're doing here for this week is helping our hearts, our minds to become more like a river and, and less like a glass of water to, uh, to allow our hearts to become bigger and bigger so that we become more free, less consumed by um, the challenges that come our way. And, and we've spoken about the Brahma Viharas, these divine abodes. Another way they're translated is it, the immeasurable minds of love. So, um, we can 
cultivate loving kindness without limit. There's no end to how loving, loving and kind we can be. So this practice of metta feeds the wholesome actions in us and it starves the unwholesome ones. Every time we recite the phrases, we're watering and feeding the wholesome in us. Even when it feels dry or robotic, mechanical. So we're inclining our mind in that direction. And it, it's a drop in the bucket. And it may not seem like much, but eventually that bucket fills and may even overflow with love and kindness. Lama Rod Owens, in his book, Love and Rage, says, the practice of spirituality is the practice of remembering who we really are beyond our suffering by allowing the universe to point us back to our most basic, truest selves. Spiritual practitioners are consenting to be guided into communication with the most honest expression of ourselves, the world around us, as well as the ultimate reality. So metta is the nature of this basic truest self in each of us. Um, and it can show up in all sorts of ways. I'm reminded of the story my dad told me when he was driving down the highway and, um, and there was a hitchhiker and he saw this hitchhiker and he didn't stop. And as he was passing the man by, the man gave him the finger. He uh, offered an obscene gesture to my dad. And so my dad was right near an exit and he decided to go back and pick up this man. And then they took him, you know, closer to where he was trying to go. Um, there's a, a story from a, a film about, um, it's a series of films and it's called Small Acts about black life in the UK and Steve McQueen is the director, one of these uh, smaller films. It uh, portrays this party these young people are having and there's a young man who comes into the party who is known to be a troublemaker. Um, and you learn in the course of the, the story that he's suffering. He lost his father recently, but he's sort of looking for a fight. He's in that kind of distress. He takes someone's beer. He's bumping into people in a very obnoxious way, just being very disruptive. And what I find fascinating about this, this film in particular is with virtually no dialogue, you just see the whole community of dancing people um, starting to embrace him rather than reject or punish this, this young man. So when the music is playing, he has these very kind of uh, expressive moves and they, they back up and give him space to make those moves. They affirm him and soon they invite him to dub into the mic with the DJ. And that's when he really begins to shine. He's found his place, he belongs. And so Metta is in the heart of these party goers that have space for this troubled soul to offer him kindness. And it, and it had a healing effect. He really settles down after that. 
So metta isn't wimpy, even if it, it has this embracing effect. It can be very fierce and set boundaries as well. And Sumi Kim, a friend and Dharma teacher, says, far from being permissive or making us weaker, metta develops fearlessness and strength so that we respond appropriately to aggression. So the party goers weren't afraid of the young man, even though at first he was kind of out of control. They knew they had a power that could respond to his disturbed state that was more powerful than his belligerent energy. So this text we've been referring to out of Sri Lanka, the Visuddhi Maga, that um, is the source of many of these teachings on loving kindness. It says, metta is a solvent that melts not only one's psychic pollutants, but also that of others, so that even hostile ones, enemies, can become friends. So there was that, that force in this dancing crowd that could melt uh, what was troubling that young, young person. I have a friend in Botswana who's a, a doctor and has been there for 20 years and is very active during the HIV crisis. Um, and she talks about working in a job with a really difficult boss and how her practice was loving kindness every morning and how her boss was her difficult person and she included her boss very very regularly and sincerely in her in her good wishes even though it was a difficult relationship and it turned out that it was her boss that helped her to find her dream job that uh, that she she was able to get, and it was really because of her boss, and so she she really felt that her practice had uh, shifted something in in that reality between them. So there's this alchemy with metta that has the, the power to really shift and, and transform not only us, but, but our relationships, our, our communities. Um, when I lived in Germany as a, as a monastic, as a nun, we did a lot of retreats with educators, mindfulness for educators, and I got to know a teacher who shared with me that um, when she knew that a, a boy with a lot of behavioral difficulties was going to join her class uh, from another class, um, she told her students that uh, a student was coming and that um, she asked them would they be willing to really welcome him and make friends with him and nourish the good things in this child. And, and they all agreed. And so everyone really did their best to welcome him and, and affirm him. And she said it had a very big impact on his behavior and that the, the kind of acting out that he had had done in, in other classes really changed in her class. So um, friendliness is a, a very powerful kind of weapon. And uh, Nelson Mandela 
says, it never hurts to see the good in someone. They often act the better because of it. So whatever we water, whatever we put our attention on, either in ourselves or in others, that's what grows. So we are like gardeners for our own, our own garden, interior garden, but also everyone else's mind is like a garden and we're, we're gardeners to, to each other's minds. When I also was living in Germany, we would offer family retreats and and the, the parents would be doing their project and their kind of practice. And some of us would be offering mindfulness practices for the children. So there was a children's program. And I remember one, one retreat, a young boy uh, came with his mom and he was really having a tough time and disruptive and kind of didn't just not want to participate, but didn't want to let what we were trying to do happen. So he would, you know, uh, prevent us from, from doing our, our activities. And so I knew his family was going through a difficult time. I, I asked him to come outside of the room with me and, and talk. And I said, you know, I really want you to be able to be with us if you'd like to be with us. And um, I care about you. And, and I said, if you, if you don't want to join us, you don't have to. You can, you know, be with your mom. And then he started to, to open up little by little. And, and he ended up sharing that he had bad eczema and that he was often teased by his friends by the other kids at school and um, I started to understand more what was behind his his being just you know disruptive with our group and um, so we connected and I think he felt he could trust me because I I was willing to listen to, to his difficulty. So then he felt more part of the group and could participate better after that. And I remember um, we would do walking meditation as a whole community. That's in the Plum Village tradition. We all go on a walk together for an hour outside through, through the garden, through... Uh, through the grounds and um, he often would would disappear at walking meditation time and I think the retreat was maybe four or five days and towards the end of the retreat he came and he walked with me and the other children's program facilitator and he he wanted to hold hands, so I held one of his hands. The other man held the other hand. And I was so moved by how much concentration he had as he walked. Like he was really putting all of his heart into each and every step. And I won't, I won't ever forget that moment of, of surprise that he, he actually wanted to do the walking. It seemed like he... He hated walking meditation, but something, something shifted on this last day where he was putting his whole heart into it. And, um, and so the, the difficult kid in quotation marks was really this gem hiding behind some difficult life experiences. But it was... It was this atmosphere of care, of, of kindness, of acceptance that allowed him to, to blossom like that. So our dear ancestor who just left us 
Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa says, we are made for goodness. We are made for love. We are made for friendliness. We are made for togetherness. We are made for all of the beautiful things that you and I know. We are made to tell the world that there are no outsiders. All are welcome. Black, white, red, yellow, rich, poor, educated, not educated, male, female, gay, straight, all, all, all. We all belong to this family, this human family, God's family. So, of course, this is a beautiful practice, but what about when there are challenges, especially when we're you know, sitting and walking all day long? Obstacles are a natural part of this practice. Metta can be like a magnet that it it brings out its opposite. And when we're practicing to, to emphasize this uh, heart of love, um, it's almost like, you know, to keep the balance, <laughs> other parts of us are going to also show up. And we can see it like, and they're, they're, they're coming up so that we, they can be seen, they can be cleaned out, you know? So it's like dusting, cleaning our house. We don't often see the dirt until we start cleaning. So we're, we're purifying our mind, our heart with metta. It's called a purification practice. So it's gonna bring up what needs our attention and care. And in our daily lives, we may not have the same kind of space and time that we do on retreat. So it's natural that things will bubble up in this context. So one challenge that I know a number of folks have mentioned is feeling like the phrases are mechanical or even fake. And it really is the case that we can fake it till we make it. Um, there's a, a wonderful teacher also in the Bay Area, Enrique Colazzo, who shared with me that when he was learning this practice, he was also struggling with not feeling like it was really real for him. And he told the story of, you know, driving through Beverly Hills when he lived in Southern California and, you know, seeing people with fancy homes and fancy cars and like, may you be happy, may you be well, just didn't feel very authentic for him. He was in an old beat up car and kind of struggling. And his teacher at the time said, you know, even if it doesn't feel real, just keep, keep sharing, keep saying the phrases, keep intending, wishing well. And so he said after some time, he did continue. And after some time, he noticed that something was shifting in him where he was aware, like, okay, they may have you know, nice homes, nice cars, but I don't really know about their lives. I'm assuming, you know, all these things. But they may have suffering. They may have difficulty also. And they're human beings like me. And he was actually able to genuinely wish them well. So, so there's science behind this as well. Uh, there's a study showing that saying nice 
nice things to plants help them to grow. So I don't know if they measured if the person saying those things really meant them or not, but just saying them seems to have, have a positive effect on the plants. So you could say that metaphrases are kind of like affirmations. And studies have shown that choosing positive thoughts has a measurable effect on our nervous system. Our daily experiences, the choices we make, how we look at life. So affirmations have been proven to help break unskillful habits, reduce fear and doubt, strengthen good habits, and build confidence and self-efficacy. So there's some things we can even do with our bodies, outwardly, with our face, that can perhaps help us when the metta feels inauthentic, or if we're saying the phrases but we don't feel them. So I just invite you to, to try with me some yoga of the mouth. Just bringing up the corners of your mouth ever so slightly or smiling as it's also known. So this can slowly begin to shift us inwardly as well. And our brains literally change when we smile. So Thich Nhat Hanh, my teacher says, Sometimes your joy is the source of your smile, but sometimes your smile can be the source of your joy. So just a, an invitation if you're struggling to connect with the energy of metta. Um, maybe it's an image or a memory that brings it to mind. Um, Gulu mentioned the baby goats. Um, but, but it could even be just, just changing your face, just letting yourself smile and just see, see if that brings more malleability, some softening. So another obstacle is distraction, and many, many have spoken to this and uh, Donald and Gulu have also mentioned practices for distraction. And the main thing is to keep returning to metta practice, knowing that it's the nature of the mind to wander, being kind to ourselves, that this is, this is part of any practice is that the mind is going to decide to do its own thing. So one, one other thing you might explore is if there are particular times of the day when you're more distracted or more likely to disconnect from the metta, maybe it's in the morning or in the afternoon or evening, could be related to fatigue or maybe having too much energy. Or maybe you get distracted with a particular category of, of the object of metta. So maybe there's a person you chose that's more complicated than you thought at first. And so you notice your mind wandering off, particularly when you send metta to them. So just check it out and see if there's any kind of pattern, because sometimes we can we can understand ourselves better and, and find ways to support our concentration when we, when we see the pattern. If you're finding one person is, is complicated for you, um, you could set the intention at the beginning of a sit to really be present with what you love about that person or what really nourishes you in that relationship. 
or maybe bring to mind a really poignant, a poignant memory of connection to help you to stay with that aspect of them in your practice. I'm just aware that I would really love to see your faces and the camera is sort of positioned behind you, but I'm, I'm feeling you and uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Good to see some of you there. Yeah. So, so grief is another obstacle, another uh, challenge that can arise. Um, if you've lost someone, um, and that, that grief is coming up, you may, um, rather than trying to generate metta, you may want to connect with the care that they felt for you and let yourself receive that, that sense of care that, uh, that you may have had with them when they were alive. Um, so it may be that, that just letting yourself connect to their goodness, their kindness, that may support you when grief arises. Um, and we can really bring compassion to our grief. Compassion is just another face of metta. It's, it's what metta does when it encounters suffering. And just if we look at our society, our world today, it's given all that's happening with the pandemic and with climate change and not only our individual uh, challenges, but our, our collective uh, just contradictions. Grief is a very real and healthy response to what's happening around us. And so if you're noticing this coming up for you, you know, it may be that, that metta isn't, uh, the metta phrases aren't exactly the right medicine grief so instead we can we can hold ourselves with compassion we can hold the situations that we're grieving with compassion and these are you know on the the sheets we've given but may i may we as a nation as a community may our pain and sorrow be eased May our hearts be at peace. May the sorrows of the world be held in compassion. So another challenge is doubt. And if we're struggling with loving kindness practice, we may wonder, uh, is something wrong with me? This isn't working. Am I at the right retreat? Um, we, we may not have been, you know, raised and socialized in a way that, that allows this to come, to come easily. Our culture doesn't lend itself to an open heart in many ways. Um, we may have been taught to close down or we may have needed to close down. And so we don't want to push this away, whatever this resistance is, whether it's doubt or fear, because it can be a way of protecting ourselves. Resma Menachem, the author of My Grandmother's Hands on Healing Racialized Trauma, he uses the phrase, respect the protect, the part of ourselves that is, you know, maybe putting up a wall between us and life, but it's there for a reason. And 
we don't just want to uh, kind of knock it down without really honoring honoring what it's there for, how it came about. Sometimes those were things that were essential to our survival in other times of our life, especially if we identify as people who've been marginalized in some way, as BIPOC or the LGBT community or differently abled, low income. There may be ways of hardening that have kept us safe. And if they're causing us to resist opening to metta, then we want to respect that they are important aspects of our lives and honor, honor their, their role in, in taking care of us, knowing that they will soften in their own time. And opening to that part of ourselves with love. May I love this too. May I love this hard part of myself, this protector. May I offer that metta as well. Mm. And there may be fear, fear of being too nice, of being weak, of being taken advantage of. If we open our hearts too much, we may not want to lose our edge because, again, that's what keeps us safe. But we can know that love is also strong. And, and metta actually was taught by the Buddha as a practice of protection. It was taught to, to monks who were in a, in a grove where um, they didn't take good care of the indigenous beings there. And they just sort of uh, took over this grove without uh, kind of asking permission properly. And so the, the spirits of that place created terrible smells and sounds and gave them nightmares. And it was a horrible experience. And the monks went back to the Buddha and said, you know, what should we do? And the Buddha taught them the practice of loving kindness uh, as a way to be in harmony with those beings where they were and to quell their own fear to protect them and also to, to take better care of, of those beings whose, whose grove they, they invaded in a way. So they ended up being able to live very harmoniously together after that. So metta is a kind of protection and, and metta can allow us to be quite strong in, in difficult situations. So. If it helps any of you with, with doubt, I wanted just to name, uh, there's a, a Huffington Post article on 18 science-based reasons to try loving kindness. So I'll just tell you a little bit of this research that's been done on loving kindness that shows that loving kindness meditation has a tremendous amount of benefits ranging from um, supporting our well-being to giving relief from illness and improving emotional intelligence. So these studies, in different studies, were found to increase positive emotions, decrease negative ones, to decrease migraines, to uh, decrease chronic pain and PTSD and schizophrenic spectrum disorders, that it really had a calming effect. They also found in studies that loving kindness increases gray matter in the brain and helps us to be more resilient in the face of stress. It helps make us more helpful, increases empathy and decreases bias, and also has a long-term impact so that even a year and a half after practicing loving kindness in a, in a class, the effects were still visible compared to control groups. So that's doubt. What about anger and irritation? 
that's probably one of the emotions that feels most opposite of metta, right? Um, that burning kind of uh, real frustration or, or anger. So what can be helpful is to really feel the anger in your body, feel the irritation and make space for it. That's what metta does, is it makes space for things, right? Whatever we care about, we give our attention to, we, we open to, so, so we can agree to feel it when it's with us, to open to the discomfort of it, the heat, the tension, the, um, the conflict. And so when we do that, when, the more we can just allow it to be, the more easily it can move and move through us, kind of like a weather pattern. So the practice is really all about building up our tolerance of unpleasant emotions and experiences. Like that image I mentioned at the beginning of being a river versus a, a glass of water so that, you know, the disappointments or the, the frictions or the annoyances don't turn us into salty water and undrinkable water. Another practice that can help with irritation or anger is to connect with others in this moment who are also experiencing irritation and anger. That was such a beautiful story that Sylvia told of when she was sort of in distress, knowing her granddaughter was suffering so much, trying to give birth. What totally shifted for her was to realize there are other people also in this situation. May they all be well and go through this difficult time with ease. So we might try that when, when we're experiencing irritation and anger too. It's like, oh, may, may others in the world who are angry right now, may they know peace. Another uh, challenge I've heard from some of us in our groups is uh, being hard on ourselves or how we might struggle to offer metta to ourselves. Maybe the inner critic comes up or um, we just have a block when it comes to ourselves. So tomorrow morning, I'll be offering us a practice that we can do where we connect with the benefactors, with the dear friends, and we, we really focus on just receiving the, the love from them. And, and Gulu's mentioned this also briefly today. Um, we, can, we can let ourselves receive metta from those who we trust and who we know love us. And that can be a gateway for us to, to begin to cultivate it for ourselves. I actually want to share with you um, uh, a, a vagal nurturing technique. So um, the vagus nerve is this longest nerve in the body that goes from our brain all the way down to um, uh, the bottom of the spine and spreads, spreads out to all the major organs and, and muscle groups. And it's really a measure of, of our well-being and health when our vagal our vagal nerve is has a, a good tone, the vagal tone. So um, I'm gonna invite you to do these very uh, simple gestures with me that help to tone the vagus nerve as a way to um, offer kindness to ourselves. So we can we can offer it through words, but we can also offer it through touch. So it's, it's said that the vagus nerve starts at the ears because we first hear, we first try to hear if we're safe. Okay, so we're going to massage our ears from the top of the earlobe on just the spine of the ear all the way down to the, to the earlobe. 
We'll do that three times. So just rolling this outer part of the, the ear just in, should feel good down to the earlobe. And again, from the top of the ear, just rolling it through your fingers down to the earlobe. Okay. And then if you have glasses, you may need to take them off. Next, we'll just place the fleshy part of our palms over the bones of the eyes. So you could rest your head in your hands. Take a few breaths as you just let your eyes rest in the darkness that your palms provide. So not pressing on your eyeballs, just offering a nice pressure to the bones and the muscles around the eyes. After we, we listen for safety, we want to see that we're safe. Great. And then the next one is we cup our hands in our palms and just bring your hands to your face and you could feel the warmth of your palms. You may even see one of your benefactors holding your face with a lot of kindness, if that's helpful. Good, and then one hand on the chest and the other hand over that hand. So bringing in support and care. Close your eyes if that helps and just take a few breaths, feeling kindness with your hands on your chest. Maybe even whispering to yourself, I am safe. And then if we keep our hands in the same position, one over the other, but we just move it down to just below the navel. So the hara or the dantian. Taking again a few breaths and just feeling the support. Feeling the breath in the belly. And then the last gesture is just turning our palms upward and resting them on our thighs. That's kind of like a shavasana for the hands. Corpse pose. We just get to rest back and just notice what's possibly shifted for you doing these exercises. So that's the sequence. And I just wonder if you might wave your hand or raise your hand if you felt something shift for you doing that. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. So um, you, could, you could do that if you like, if it's supportive. It's, when I learned it, it was encouraged to do it three times in a row, so ears, Eyes, cheeks, heart, belly, and then resting. So if you want, you can do it once or do it three times. Or if you just remember one of those uh, exercises, you just do one of them. Let's see if that helps to, to soften the heart with yourself.
So I want to just speak a little more in the last uh, bit of time about metta as a protection. And uh, as a way of staying safe. So there is a, a text also that lists the benefits of metta from, from the Dharma. And one of them is that poison won't uh, hurt you and uh, knives won't hurt you. And, you know, in all these, you know, dangerous situations, if you're, Practicing metta, you won't you won't be uh, harmed. And um, one of the main assistants of Thich Nhat Hanh, her name is Sister Chung Kong, and she was practicing with Thich Nhat Hanh during the war in Vietnam, and then came also sort of exiled from Vietnam when he was also exiled, and so. She's really been a huge part of building up the community of, of monks, nuns, and lay people in the Plum Village tradition. But she um, tells a story of when they were in Vietnam, um, and they were uh, so so. Thich Nhat Hanh had started the School of Youth for Social Service, training thousands of young people to um, go to villages and. Um, throughout the country to build schools and help farmers and um, support, support people during the war. And they would often be going into war zones and taking care of the wounded. And so there had been a, a battle. And uh, so they, many monks, nuns, young social workers were caring for the wounded in this in this school, and they knew that there were the two warring sides were coming closer, and they were going to start to endanger these already wounded people that were taking refuge. And so, a monk uh, went out into the active battleground with bullets whizzing, with a Buddhist flag, and he went to one side and he said, "Would you please?" have a ceasefire to protect all these people that we're trying to take care of. And they agreed. And so he went to the other side and he asked them also, would you please um, uh, stop fighting for us to, to safely care for these people and evacuate them? And both sides agreed. And he came back to his community and, you know, he was like, of course he was scared you know, to do that. But he just said, the bullets avoided me. So his, his deep compassion, his deep love for, for the safety of these people was kind of a, a shield protecting him. Um, so, you know, all these stories, it's not that, that we practice metta and nothing bad will happen to us but it's that we will have a much greater container to hold the difficulties that come our way. So that when we're in a difficult situation, we don't make it worse by resisting it, by um, being taken away by a lot of fear, a lot of worry. So metta allows us to have some measure of equanimity and and not suffer unnecessarily, to keep our mind clear and as calm as it can be. And so when we're in touch regularly with the goodness of our lives, practicing gratitude, reflecting on what's good, what's, what's wholesome in us and in other people, when things go badly, when life is difficult, we see this against the background of all that we have, rather than as the totality of our lives. And so we suffer a lot less. So 
Um, one, one last offering of where we can get support from is the earth. So a story that I really love is of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree on his night of awakening and how Mara came and challenged him in several different ways. But the last and most challenging that uh, Mara also being kind of an aspect of ourselves, and not, not only an external being, but also kind of all of our inner demons. So this was really the face of doubt where Mara was like, who do you think you are to become enlightened? You know, who am I to try to generate metta for a whole week at Spirit Rock, right? I can't really do this. That's maybe the internal voice of Mara. <clears throat> so when Mara was challenging the Buddha in this way, the Buddha took a breath and touched the earth. He was seated and he just put his hand down and he touched the earth and he said, I call on the earth as my witness that I can do this, that I can aspire to such a, an amazing thing as to awaken. And right at that moment, it said, the earth shook. And the, the goddess of the earth appeared and, and protected the Buddha and said, yes, you know, this is your right. This is your birthright. And with that, Mara vanished. So... So earth is there for us all the time, supporting us, is rejoicing in our efforts. And we can draw upon the strength of the earth when we practice, when we walk, when we sit, when we feel challenged, we can call up uh, the, the power of the earth which is the most phenomenal example of metta <laughs> that we, we could ever uh, find. It's just this bodhisattva, this great being that's always giving to all the beings on the earth, right? It's giving us air and water and food and clothing and, and the materials for our homes and, and beauty and beautiful sounds and sights and colors, smells. And each other, we get to have each other because of the earth, right? So we can reflect if, if, we, if we ever need more support from our benefactors, we can turn to the earth as the ultimate benefactor. Earth that makes our lives possible and where we go to rest when our lives in this body end. So, um, I invite us to to really take refuge in the earth, to receive the metta of the earth, to offer our metta to the earth. As a, as a protection, as a support, as inspiration in our metta practice. And, and many of you have been sharing how you're already doing this uh, with the beautiful nature that's around you there. So let's um, sit quietly for a moment.
offer a sound of my bell. I don't know how well you'll hear it. Here for your kind attention. And uh, I think there's walking practice now, followed by sitting and chanting. If there are any other announcements, I hope my fellows will, will make them. Good night. Chanting will be. Uh, chanting as we did last night, but also with the Metta Sutta. So uh, hopefully you have the uh, handout in the hall. If you don't, it'd be good to bring back because we'll work with the Metta Sutta um, at nine. <laughs>